there was a little girl who was given an essay in her class to write about the birth of her family. So first of all, she went to her mother to inquire how she was born. Mom was a little busy, and so she said to her, well, dear, it's like this, the stork brought you. Well, the little girl, armed with that information, moved on in her family and went to interview then her father. She said, Dad, how were you born? Dad thought for a moment and smiled. He said, well, honey, they found me in the garden. The fairies brought me. Still puzzled by that answer, she went on then to find her grandmother and ask her how she had been born. Grandma said, well, dear, I was plucked from the gooseberry bush in the backyard. The little girl had all the information that she needed. She wrote her essay, and the day came in school for her to deliver it. And she stood up in front of the class and made the following statement. She said, there has not been a natural birth that occurred in my family for three generations. Truly, the passage that we look at today has to do with birth, birth of a new kind. We hear in this reading today in the gospel one of what we might think is the most famous verse of the Bible, John 3.16. We see it in the background when cameras pan audiences at sporting events and at other places. For God so loved the world. But it was interesting to do some search on statistics, it isn't the most popular verse. The most popular verse is Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And yet, John 3.16 still gives us an encapsulation of what we know Jesus came to earth to do. For God so loved the world that He gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Truly, Jesus gave that lesson today in John to the Pharisee that came. And I encourage you to look in your connection at the Scripture for this morning to open your pew Bible to follow along as we look at some of those verses and begin with the first one in John chapter 3. John records this, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And maybe some background on the Pharisees might help us. The Pharisees were a group of 6,000 in Judaism. To become a Pharisee, you needed to take a vow that was witnessed by three people. It was a very dedicated life, a dedicated life to every detail of the law. Part of what the Pharisees were there for and part of their mantra was that they were looking for the kingdom of God. That meant the rule and reign of God among them in Jerusalem. They looked for the Messiah to come, to have that kingdom where God would once again be present among them when he would rule them as he had in the past under the reign of David the king. It's interesting that John names for us Nicodemus. 
He tells us which member this was of the Pharisees. This was the best that all of Judaism had to offer because John tells us that he was a member of the 70, of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body over the Jews, the judge and jury of every law and everything that was to take place. This is the person who came to see Jesus. And John goes on. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if you were not with him. Now, John uses the phrase, he came at night. It wasn't unusual for rabbis, for Pharisees, for others to study well into the night. That was a common practice. But the truth is, John uses night in a different way in his gospel. He contrasts night from day and darkness from light. And John often uses night to refer to ignorance or untruths that are going on in the person's life. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, maybe not to be seen by those in the daytime, maybe on a secret mission from the 70 to inquire about Jesus. He greets him with the term rabbi, that you are a teacher, though I'm sure to Nicodemus, a rabbi that was untrained, that came out of Galilee, was quite a puzzlement to him, not something that was typical, not one of them. And he says, we know by the signs that you do, the miracles that you do, that God is with you. He's saying good things about Jesus, but really what he's there for is he wants to know more about the person of Jesus, who he is, his qualifications, the things that he says. And Jesus replies to him after his statement of greeting, very truly I tell you, no one, can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. It might seem like a strange response after Nicodemus has greeted Jesus to say, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher sent from God because of the signs. But Jesus knows the Pharisees. He knows their mantra. He knows their desire to see the kingdom of God, to have that messianic age come among them. So Jesus cuts through all of the rhetoric to the point of, this is the only way, Nicodemus, that you will ever see the kingdom of God. You must be born again. And Jesus is going to then unpack how that works. He's going to say who he is and how the kingdom of God comes among men. That we must be born again. That word in the Greek can carry two emphases. It can carry the idea of again, born again, or also it can carry the emphasis of born from above. We see by Nicodemus' response to Jesus' statement that he takes the born again rather than the born from above because he says the following, How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Nicodemus totally understands the earthly concept of being born again, but has no idea on the spiritual part. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, this is how you become part of the kingdom. This is what I came to do. This is what I'm about, Nicodemus, as he goes through the passages in John to talk about being born of water 
and the Spirit. You know, it's always interesting as we read these passages, as we hear this once again, as we sang in our hymn, that anyone would ever doubt that this is Jesus talking about baptism. But there are those who continue to look at the Scriptures and say, oh, well, the Gospels must be chronological. They must happen in the order of things in Jesus' life. So Jesus could in no way be talking in this passage about baptism because it hasn't been instituted yet. That doesn't come till the end chapter when Jesus gives the great commission to his disciples. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father. That's when baptism took place. Or they look at the verse where Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And they say, well, they can't refer to his crucifixion because it hasn't happened yet. That takes place later. The same thing is true on many passages that come before as they say, well, it can't be a reference to the Lord's Supper because that hasn't been instituted yet. I say that because the reason that they say those things is to argue against the point of baptism, to argue against the fact that this is all God's work to us, that we are not the ones who come into the kingdom by our own reason or strength, as Luther would say, but that it is a total gift from God. In fact, Luther in one passage talks about this as he writes a fellow theologian. He says this, It pleases me, very much that this doctrine of ours gives glory and everything else solely to God and nothing to men. For it is impossible to ascribe too much glory and goodness to God. And it is also true that the gospel takes away all glory, wisdom, and goodness from men and gives it again only to God. For it is far safer to ascribe too much to God than it is to men. How true that is. That this passage talks about God's work in our lives, being born of water and the Spirit, that it is all God's work given to us, what Jesus came for, His mission, His goal in life to redeem fallen man, to go to the cross, to give us this gift of the sacrament of baptism that we might be joined to Him forever, joined to His forgiveness and His love. Or isn't that what John 3.16 says? For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And then the next verse, John 3.17. We often gloss over that because of John 3.16. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Jesus shows incredible compassion to this person of the ruling body, this member who that group wanted at all costs to find a reason to get rid of Jesus, to stop him from his teachings, to stop subverting the people, as the chief priest would say, that they could be done with him. And yet Jesus shows Nicodemus compassion. Compassion as he tells him about the incredible gift that God has given through his only son. You know, I have a friend who is a pastor in Ohio, and he told me one time about 
a phone call that he received. Oh, it's one of those phone calls, you know, that you answer and the person on the other line, before they ever identify themselves, just begins speaking to you and you're kind of taken back. So it was with him. He answered the phone and the person on the other end of the line said, Are you a born-again Christian? Well, he's a little sarcastic. He wanted to retort to that person, but he didn't. He said, yes, yes, I am. Well, they went on quickly then with some other questions. They said, do you believe in the virgin birth? Do you believe in the inerrancy of Scripture? Have you been spirit baptized? Do you pray and prophesy in tongues? Finally, when he got a word in, he began to answer those questions. He says, yes, I believe in the virgin birth. Yes, I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. Yes, I was baptized in the Spirit at my baptism when my parents brought me to the baptismal font. No, I don't pray or prophesy in tongues, though I would think sometimes my congregation might think I speak in a foreign language on Sunday. They weren't amused on the other side of the phone. Finally, they said, well, then you have no business pastoring. You are really not born again. And in their opinion, your status as a Christian even comes into question. Condemnation. It's something that comes very easily at times to us. To look at someone and to, in our mind, condemn them for what we believe their errors are or their misconceptions or whatever it is that they've done. We see things in the news that we find horrible atrocities in, in our heart of hearts. We want the entire wrath of God to be poured out on that person for what they have done. And yet those words of John 3.17 come back, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. John Artberg tells the story of a man named Bill Moore. Bill Moore had one of those rough lives. He grew up in poverty. He grew up on the other side of the tracks. One night he got intoxicated, took a gun, and shot a store owner just because he wouldn't give him another drink to buy. He was sentenced to death row. And while on death row, those who came into the prison to minister about the grace of Jesus Christ found Bill. Bill heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world, and it profoundly changed his life. No longer was he bitter. No longer was there evil and hatred in his heart. Now there was that peace. That peace that comes from a relationship with Jesus Christ through being baptized. Bill, it was so said of him that it so profoundly changed his life that other prisoners began to come to talk to him. So many so that it became known throughout the prison that death row where Bill's cell block was was the safest place in the prison because of the love of Jesus Christ. Word got out from the prison to the local congregations. And those ministers began to send people to the prison. Can you imagine that? Your pastor saying, I have someone I want you to see. You're going to go to the prison on death row. And you're going to talk to Bill Moore. 
People came to him to hear about the wonders that Jesus' redeeming love had done in his life. Eventually, he was able to speak with the victim's family and to tell them about what had happened to him. And eventually, they reconciled and the love of Jesus overflowed that situation. Bill's life went on with something that happened that was just inconceivable. The prison board eventually paroled him and commuted his sentence, his death row sentence. And he became a pastor in the inner city at some of the poorest church to minister to others who had had an upbringing like him so that he could bring the love of Jesus Christ into their lives. The power of what Jesus came to do, his compassion to someone like Bill, His love that transformed him. He was saved and not condemned. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. You know, we forget that verse, I think, a lot, as I said. We spend time in our lives with that knee-jerk reaction of condemnation so easily. I witnessed it often witnessed it when there were teachers or profs or other students when another student wouldn't exactly get a theological concept or had a question about something that they would look with sharp ridicule at someone to say, oh, how can you say that? How can you not understand that? To be quick to condemn them for not being part of the group or being outside of that. Just like that phone call that my pastor friend got from a woman starting out with just condemnation for someone that she thought had no business being a pastor. So it is with us many times over. Oh, we might sit here this morning and say, well, I'm not a Bill Moore. I didn't kill someone. I'm not on death row. But we have in our hearts condemned others. And yet we see Jesus not condemning Nicodemus, but showing him compassion. And because of Galatians 2.20 that bases our series that's about Christ living in me, so it is no longer I who live, we know that Christ lives in us through the waters of our baptism that we have been placed into Jesus Christ, that while our sinful nature wants to condemn, we know that the power of the Spirit in our lives can overcome that natural tendency, can change and transform us just as Bill Moore was changed and transformed. It's a daily thing. It's a life journey. It doesn't happen all at once. It is the grace of God working in our lives through the Spirit to transform our hearts again and again, to make them new in the grace and love of Jesus Christ, our Savior. On our own, in our own sinful way, we will solely seek to condemn and to justify our attitudes again and again. But with Christ living in us, His compassion that He shows to every one of us, to redeem us when we were lost and condemned by the law of God, when we were separated because of our sin, when we each time again and again return to our sinful ways, His grace overwhelms us and transforms us, calls us back from the way that we have gone to come back again to His love and His compassion. 
Truly, we are people in this world who have been shown a great compassion just as Bill Moore was shown that great compassion. That we are forgiven and we are redeemed. That Christ came into this world not to condemn us but to save us by his grace and his love and his peace and his forgiveness. We are washed in the waters of our baptism. We are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are connected to him for eternity. And he pours into our hearts his spirit so that we too may be those to extend his grace and love to all around. May we truly show the compassion of Christ to those in our lives. May we refrain from our condemnation and our attitudes of judgment and remember that we have only been shown compassion by our Lord and Savior who came into this world to save each one of us by his death and resurrection. Amen.